1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Adrian Goldsworthy on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, How Rome Fell, Death of a Superpower. This is, of course, the classic historical question, that is, why did the Roman Empire fall? And as you may know, there are many, many, many explanations. The difficulty, of course, is that when you have a lot of explanations, you don't have any satisfying explanation. And that's what makes Adrian's book so terrific. He he boils it all down to what is really quite a sensible account of the events that led the late Roman Empire to fall in the fifth century. I I won't tell you exactly what the explanation is. It becomes clear in the course of the interview, but I will say that it focuses on the kind of nitty gritty details of Roman politics, uh, which of course are always fascinating. They've often been treated in fiction. I don't see why, because in fact, they were amazing. You know, he pays a lot of attention to Roman political culture. He also talks a little bit about the comparison, which is often made between the United States today and the Roman Empire. Then, there have been a number of books that have treated this subject. We had a short discussion about it, and I think you'll find it entertaining. Adrian's not a big fan of these comparisons. I really enjoyed my discussion with Adrian today, and I think you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Fine, thanks. Now, you are someplace in the U.K., correct? Yes, I'm in South Wales over in the West. South Wales. I don't believe I've ever been to Wales. I hear it's beautiful, though.
0: Some of it is, yes. Today it's, it's raining, cloudy, and uh, we're, but we're on the coast. We've got nice seaside and yeah. mountains not far to the north, so it's quite pleasant.
1: Yeah, that sounds very nice. Noah, we we are we have overcast skies here in uh, central United States as well, uh, right. and we have no ocean and no hills. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I should tell our listeners that we have uh, Adrian Goldsworthy on the show today, and we'll be discussing. His terrific new book, "How Rome Fell: Death of a Superpower." Um, as all the listeners to this show will know, I, I have read the book. One of the great pleasures of doing this program is that I get to read all these fantastic books, and, and this is a, a, a really, uh, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting and terrific read. One of the things that occurred to me while I was reading the book um, is that there's a lot of uh, there have been many fictional treatments of Roman politics, and it's kind of hard to understand why, because Uh, Roman politics uh, don't really need to be elaborated in order to be incredibly interesting, and Adrian does a terrific job of uh, kind of fleshing that out. There's lots of human drama in this book, and of course there's a ton of really terrific historical analysis. But before we get to the discussion of the book itself, um, Adrian, let me ask you to say a few words about uh, your own life, that is, where you were born, where you went to school, how you became interested in history, and that sort of thing.
0: Well, I was actually born a few miles away from, from where I live now, um, right. just in the city of Cardiff in South Wales, and grew up here apart from about seven years at Oxford at university. It happened, the first university job I got was back in Cardiff, so and then writing took off, so I've pretty much been here ever since, mm-hmm. so um, very much stayed in the hometown and uh, that area because it's, it's a nice part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, went to school locally, uh, went to a small boys' school um, where we were taught in a very traditional, old-fashioned way that was effective but not terribly exciting. But it meant that I had to learn in from a young age, which is a, a big asset later on, rather than Greek I had to learn at university because um, when I was about 12, we were given the choice of learning ancient Greek, but it meant staying in at lunchtime and not going out and not kicking a football around or doing something like that. So at that age, I decided it was better to go out for lunch rather than have a lesson in Greek. So I had to learn that as a student um, when I was went off to Oxford. But, uh, probably the hard way. So um, I suppose the interest in history just has always been there. Um, It is a nice thing about Britain that you've got so many um, sites all around you. I mean, we've got a a castle in Cardiff that's um, 12th century. Mm -hmm. But for me, particularly the interest in the Romans came Because the Romans were here as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a Roman legionary fortress or the remains of it, an amphitheater just about 20 miles to the east of where I live. So I remember pestering my parents to take me there all the time as a kid. And it was, you know, the Greeks, the Egyptians, it's all very well, but they weren't here. Mm -hmm. I could go to things that the Romans had built and I could scramble over them and I could touch them, and that just seemed to bring it to life so much more.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, so I, I can certainly understand that I lived for a time and taught in Ireland and I remember uh, yeah. I, you know I remember there would be things that would be hundreds and hundreds of years old and I would look and and I and, and I would be with my Irish friends and I'd say look at that old castle over there and they'd say what old castle <laughs> oh yeah, that, yes, it, it, that, it, oh that, true. yeah, right yeah, there, yeah. And, You know, this is older than anything I've ever seen in the United States I mean, not that there aren't, you know, things of great antiquity here Oh yeah But there's um, but there's nothing like what they had laying, just laying around in Ireland, just everywhere And But they, the Irish just didn't really, really notice it because it was part of the landscape But I, it fascinated me and I always wanted to go these things and they were like they will probably tear it down and put up a new chip shop or something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's the same really <laughs> for most people but I, I don't know I mean, it's just one of those things that, that history has always fascinated and excited me and I I think even as well and perhaps the reason I've done quite a lot of military history is, is I grew up by my father had been in the, the latter stage of the Second World War. Um, he ran a small shop, which in Britain, shops acquire people, lots of old men who don't have anywhere else to go, and mm-hmm. they sort of sit around and talk and to the point where everyone thinks they must be employed, but they just turn up. And there were lots of the people who'd been soldiers in India and Burma and all over the world or in the Air Force. So I heard all these stories growing up, and it just makes you interested in... Mm-hmm. Not just the past, but the people. Mm -hmm. You know, it it isn't just the great events. It's what it meant for the individuals to Mm -hmm. be there. And that's the approach I've tried to take as far as possible to ancient history, even though obviously it's much more difficult there.
1: But before we launch off into a discussion of the book, again, let me take another small digression uh, since you mentioned it. A a lot of the listeners to this program, I think... um, are uh, They They were uh, what we call here in the United States history majors or are interested in writing history, or they uh, are or were academics and are interested in, in writing for a popular audience. And, and you and some of the other people who I've interviewed on the show have successfully made that, I would call it a leap. <laughs> I'm not sure everybody would, but I would call it a leap uh, from academia into popular writing. Can you talk a little bit about how you negotiated that and how you had to adjust the way you write and the kind of topics you chose and that sort of thing?
0: Yeah, it certainly is. A, it, it, it's a leap. I mean, I had um, the good fortune in that even when I was doing my, my doctorate, my supervisor was very keen on writing well, which was a fairly unusual thing there, and tried to tell you to, you know, don't make it look like a thesis, make it look like a book. Mm-hmm. So I reckon by academic standards that some of the stuff I wrote then was at least possibly readable. Mm-hmm. But the first popular book I did, I, I got a contract to write a, a coffee table Illustrated book on on Roman warfare, mm-hmm. and it was part of a series that John Keegan, the, the famous military historian, was mm-hmm. editing. And for instance, there were something like three or four volumes just covering the Second World War, mm-hmm. and I got one volume to cover a thousand years of <laughs> Roman military history <laughs> in forty thousand words and a hundred illustrations.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it meant that I think I think it was either the fourth or the fifth draft I wrote just to get it down to size because that word limit mm-hmm. was tight. But it. It made me think very much from the, the start about what was truly important, mm-hmm. what you need to explain. And the big mistake always to make is to assume people know quite a lot mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm.
2: have
0: to be prepared to explain. And really, in the end, though, I think it's something that it, it's, it's best to try and remember what got you so excited about history in the first mm-hmm. place.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if you turn to that and if you talk to plenty of people who are, interested casually, perhaps in a different period, wandering around, say, a historical site with them and just chatting mm-hmm. is a good way of getting an idea of what people know and what interests them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of, and through teaching and um, mm-hmm. you know all of these things in a different way. It's being aware of the audience. Mm-hmm. If you write purely for the few dozen or few hundred other people who are specialists in your field then that's fine and you're aware of that. But Mm -hmm. uh, the things that will fascinate them, the minutiae, the detail, it's just too much to cope with for a a wider readership. And Mm -hmm. I remember um, one of the first books I did after, sorry, the one after Roman Warfare was a thing on the Punic Wars, and I'd written a sort of introductory chapter that was straight out of really how I would have done things for an academic book. Mm So I, I surveyed the the modern scholarship on the subject, and you know, there were pages and pages of so-and-so says this, and then in mm. response, such-and-such said that. And the editor um, asked me out to lunch, <laughs> and said, so, you know, essentially, well, who are these people, and why should I care about them? <laughs> um, and just explained how, you know, you you can get the same ideas across, but a lot of the information you can push into the notes or the bibliography. Yeah. And in the end. You know, it's like a conversation you know you, you need to communicate with the reader and that's mm-hmm. what it's about you don't have to simplify the ideas mm-hmm. but you just have to present them in a way that is interesting mm-hmm. and all said and done which to some extent in academia you don't have to do <laughs> because everyone's interested in the first place
1: yeah no that's right no well there's, there's some variation there as well The uh, but, but I think that's terrific advice to to people that want to write for a popular audience that is to remember what excited you and never take anything for granted because you know I, I'm always surprised and amazed about the things that my students don't know but there's a good reason they don't know them because they haven't studied them for 20 odd years like exactly and I tend to forget this because I talk to academics a lot, but I, I think it's absolutely terrific advice, and, and I would suggest anybody uh, uh, follow it. So let me ask another uh, related question, and that is uh, h- how did uh, writing for a popular audience affect the way that you choose topics for books?
0: That, um, well, interestingly enough, the first few ideas of the, the more popular books were all topics presented to me by the publisher. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah. could you do a book on Roman warfare? Yeah. Would you do a book on the Punic Wars? Yeah. Could you do a book on the Roman army?
2: Yeah.
0: The first one where I'd actually chose the topic myself was The Biography of Caesar, when uh-huh. I did before this, this last book, yeah. and that was something I'd wanted to write for ages. Uh-huh. But by that time, I had an idea of how things worked, how publishers think. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it's, it's such an obvious topic. Um, to be honest, I was glad, though, that I'd written several other things for mm-hmm. popular market first, because I think I was better prepared to deal with something big like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this. This latest book on the, the fall of the empire again came through. It was my idea, simply because I was became interested in the subject and I wasn't really satisfied in everything else. But you have to think in terms of topics that have recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, if you chose to write a biography of a Roman general like Domitius Corbulo or something, who, who might be frightfully interesting and is in many ways, but the name doesn't have recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's heard of Julius Caesar. Everybody knows the Roman Empire fell. Mm-hmm. You need to have a topic where people are willing to pick the book up in the first place mm-hmm. and flick through it in a bookshop and browse through it, and then they might read. So you you have to think in terms of, of a market for something. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't quite have the freedom to look at the, you know, whatever your pet subject may be. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, though, that, that plenty of the big subjects are absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And if you were writing purely academic studies, you tend to be much more cautious about what you covered. Mm -hmm. because You think, well, I'm not going to take the risk of writing on such a big thing as that. Mm -hmm. I'll cover maybe one small aspect of Caesar's life, Mm -hmm. or I'll look at one bit of detail Mm -hmm. of the fall of the empire. Mm -hmm. It's rather like finding yourself often when you're teaching a course and you often with the nature of of how academic jobs work you'll end up teaching something that you haven't really studied in great detail yourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that can often be a lot of fun where you you know you read up on a subject and then find explaining that and passing that on because you know we're all historians so we know how to look at history um so in a way it's a similar experience and again it's thinking in the same way you think of courses that would be useful but also that students might like you think in terms of well what's important but also what would people find interesting? So you you need to be, again, it's, it's awareness of the audience, and it is a different audience to the purely academic one.
1: I, th- I think you should write a little article about this and submit it to I don't know whom, because um, I, all of your advice just seems terrific to me. I, I meet lots of people uh, who want to write popular history, and, and especially mm-hmm. not just popular history, but also um, historical fiction, and everything you've said mm-hmm. I think is spot on. That is exactly right. The other thing I would say is, and I bet you agree with me, is that get a literary agent and listen to mm-hmm. him or her. Uh, yeah. and, and 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 really listen very carefully and follow their advices because you know, their advice because they do these things professionally, and they know what you should do better than at least I knew. I mean, I, I have an agent. Not that I've ever made him any money, but um, <laughs> the, but I do listen to him, and I'm probably not as closely as I should, uh, or he'd be a lot richer. The, um, but yeah, I mean, no, it, it's it's really important to listen to them. And, it's... They, it's... Go ahead.
0: Sorry, it's certainly true because I did the first few books without an agent. I was uh-huh. simply uh, because I'd been offered the contract, and then the, mm-hmm. the publishers liked the first coffee table book, so they mm-hmm. asked me to do a succession of mm-hmm. things. And it was with Caesar that I'd signed up with an agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just been superb. Yeah. And it's it's meant that I've been able to take more time to do each book yeah. because obviously she's got a better deal. Yeah, but that's right. You have someone, as you say, that you can go to and say, well, you know, this is the idea. How does this work? What do you respond? Because they're, you know, they they know the they know the business,
1: yeah,
0: um, and it, it and in the end, if you're doing this professionally, then you have to think of it as a business.
1: No, I think it's you know,
0: not it right. simply a hobby.
1: No, that's right. I think that's exactly right. And that's why you want to uh, enlist somebody like a literary agent who will, in a sense, work as your agent, who will work mm. for your benefit and will tell you what you uh, need to do and um, what you have to do in order to make a living doing this. And, you know, I, I think it's I tell all historians that I talk to that they should get literary agents, no matter how obscure their topics, because they have mm. the skills that are necessary uh, to do the research. They might not quite know how to write it. But the mm-hmm. agent will help them with that. And you know, you would be surprised. Uh you know, some very obscure things, what you would think of as obscure things, um, can actually do quite well. I I'm, I'm yeah, I used to study the book industry a little bit when I was in journalism and um I worked on it and I can tell you that it's there's a lot of demand out there for for popular history. So um oh, yeah. I applaud you. I really do. <laughs> I, I applaud you and envy you in a certain way. Um so let's talk about uh how Rome fell. You you begin the the book quite appropriately with a discussion of the historiography, which is enormous. I mean, this is the classic historical question. And it struck me in doing some research uh, as background for this interview is that one of the problems with the the question itself is that uh, the number of reasons or causes or explanations that have been offered are almost too numerous, that your mind can't keep them all. Yes.
0: I mean, from the very beginning, I knew that it wouldn't be make any sense at all to write a book and to cover each one and each suggestion and then you know put the pros and cons for for and against it um simply because of the, there are so many and they'll, they'll swamp you but also rather a lot of them do rely on very limited evidence yes you know i personally suspect that there were huge economic problems in the the latest, later centuries of the roman empire and that was a major factor whether it was a cause whether it was to some extent an effect but it was it would spiral out of hand Measuring that is impossible because we don't have any statistics Mm -hmm. not that we can use and you know Very sensible people have looked at exactly the same evidence and come to completely opposite Mm -hmm. conclusions Mm -hmm. So there were things like that that I know are important and I talk about a little bit, but also Realize that you simply cannot base an entire theory around that Mm -hmm. Um, and of course there are other reasons why there are other things I think have been neglected but it's It's quite a daunting thing. Again, going back to, to what we said earlier, um, it's the sort of thing where if you were writing a formally academic study just for the scholars in the field, you'd have to turn it into some great multi-volume yeah. lifetimes work because yeah. there are just so many different things to take mm-hmm. into account. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the sources themselves, uh, and one of the things that you say in the book, or at very least imply, is that you, you really kind of have to go with what you have. And what we have, well, I'll let you talk about it. What, what do we have in terms of sources for this period, the late Roman period? It's extremely patchy. Um, you know, you have to remember that
0: although there was a, an awful lot of history, an awful lot of literature, a lot of official documentation produced by the Roman Empire and in the ancient world, that the tiniest fraction of one percent of it has survived Mm -hmm. we have lost so much many things we're aware, aware that they existed but um they haven't survived there's plenty more out there that we simply don't know about so you're dealing with a tiny glimpse of something that was far more substantial far more like modern records it's also in style presents all sorts of problems the bulk of what we have for late antiquity tends to be religious and particularly christian literature Logically enough, that's what the monasteries preserve, you know, that's what was worth copying. And the reason stuff has survived is generally because somebody has considered it worthwhile to copy the manuscript Mm -hmm. and copy it again and again. You know, we rarely have an original document from 3rd century AD or something like that. It tends to be a medieval copy. Mm -hmm. That's that's likely to be the earliest um, manuscript source. Mm -hmm. So you have those problems of survival. You also have, even when you get to conventional history, you have the differences in style, which not only was ancient historiography a a very different thing to um, the modern way of of, of writing history, in that it tended to focus on certain things. There was much more emphasis on rhetoric, on style, on um, certain conventions, rather than necessarily getting to the truth or giving you the detail. But for large parts of the period covered in the book, there are not detailed, reliable narrative sources for basic events.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So, you even have question marks over the existence of of certain emperors. Um, Mm -hmm. One, for instance, who probably only lasted a few months and only ruled Britain and a few parts of of Northwest Europe in the third century. Mm -hmm. His existence was confirmed because a coin turned up a couple of years ago. So, he he lived long enough to have coins minted in his name (laughs) and he's mentioned in the sources but everyone had thought he was just an invention. Mm -hmm. Um, To give you one idea, of how poor sources get, particularly for the third century AD, one of the main um, documents we have to use is a thing called the Historia Augusta. Now, this pretends to be a set of biographies of emperors written by four or five different authors in the early fourth century. Now, it's quite clearly... Um, In fact, the work of one man possibly to some extent is a joke or a satire written much later Mm -hmm. And yet we're so desperate that we end up using fragments of this because there simply is nothing else Mm -hmm. And to get even the basic framework of events you end up using all sorts of questionable stuff so Mm -hmm. It's very refreshing when you get to parts of the fourth century and you have a a narrative like Ammianus Marcellinus But only a small part of that actually survives Mm -hmm. 6th century, you get um, Procopius with Justinian, but again, you, you know, before you get, even when you get to these, even when you get these good sources, they've got all the inherent biases, all the deliberate distortions, all the axes mm-hmm. to grind of any source of any period. Mm-hmm. It's just that very rarely is there anything to check them against. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So although we can say, well, we're pretty suspicious about this, we're not quite sure whether he's telling the truth or exaggerating.
2: Mm-hmm
0: or whether it's he's just such a, a hostile commentator or he didn't even know. Um, if we reject that, <laughs> there isn't usually anything else to put in its place. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's easy, you know, when you, you get wild stories about the Huns that Ammianus tells us about how, you know, they, um, they used to cook meat by putting it beneath their saddles, and as they rode along the frictions have gradually cooked it and all this sort of, <laughs> there's a lot that is deeply suspicious. Um, but when he tells us about an emperor or his motives or the actions he, he actually carried out, as I say, if we reject it, there isn't a lot to put in its place. So mm-hmm. all the time you have to keep putting in caveats. You have to have an element of caution that at times we simply cannot be sure what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways it means that makes it almost easier covering a wider period because you you know it's it's that much harder to look at the detail. But mm-hmm. it means that you could end up with almost every sentence with almost any statement in the book putting paragraph after paragraph of explanation Mm -hmm. of justification of doubts of suspicion of well you know to the point where you you'd laden it down so much that um, it would just become impossible to read but also confusing Mm -hmm. so you really have to begin um, right from the word go and say well look there's there's a lot we can't know there's a lot we're not sure about and even when you come to harder evidence like archaeology, which is something that has, has obviously grown massively since Gibbon wrote its classic decline and fall in the, the 18th century, mm-hmm. often if you look at the archaeological record for one region, the impression of that period is based on a handful of sites but may not have been fully excavated or may have been excavated decades ago and not particularly scientifically or before modern methods were available, may have been interpreted on the basis of all sorts of assumptions that perhaps don't really um, stack up when you look at them in detail. And that because you're dealing again with a tiny sample of the evidence that's there because that's all we've discovered so far, one or two new finds, one or two new sites might completely revolutionize the impression of What life was like in Spain or something
1: in the fifth century. So
0: that in particular, that's an ongoing thing. There will be new discoveries. There will be new interpretations.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I think it's an important lesson. I mean we tend to think in this information-rich age that um, there should be good records for everything. But I'm reminded of a kind of a similar. Uh, a similar uh, example in my own field, which was early modern Russian studies, where, where the documentary um, complex is quite similar, I think, to the one that you deal with. I have a colleague who has spent uh, thousands and thousands of hours in, in much of his scholarly career trying to figure out how many wives Ivan the Terrible had. <laughs> we just really don't know. And you, know, you would think that that would be dead simple. He had five. He had four. And these were their names. But we don't know. We, we really can't quite figure it out. And this guy has spent you know tons of time trying to figure it out. Uh, so in any event, I certainly can respect the fact that the documentary uh, complex is, 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 is quite limited. But nonetheless, we have to tell the tale. This is what I tell all my graduate students. You go with what you have and this is what we have. Um, so uh, let, let me ask you a historiographical question now because there's some discussion of this in the book. And I wasn't really aware of this not being a classist myself. Um, we don't really quite know what to call this period. Uh, it's, is, is it now uh, the fashion to call it the late antiquity, or, what, or is it the period of decline? What, 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 what do we call it, and why do people uh, uh, ha, d- d- not really know what to call it?
0: Well, decline and fall is very definitely out of fashion. Um, it really has become late antiquity for most people, and some of this has to do with people sensibly saying that, you know, this is quite an interesting period, it should be treated separately, it should be treated on its own merits, it shouldn't. The the old-fashioned way, the sort of 19th century, early 20th century way of looking at it was to see it very much as as rather a poor thing compared Mm to earlier Greek and Roman history. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's an element of sort of justifying themselves amongst the scholars working on it, particularly in in English-speaking countries. Um, So late antiquity developed. You also, I mean, running along at the same time, the Dark Ages has rather vanished from history, and Mm -hmm. you now have the early medieval period because Medieval history departments tend to be better funded and a bit more prestigious, (laughs) so being an early medievalist makes a lot more sense Mm career-wise. It gives you somebody else to talk to, so that, and and yes, it is true that, you know, the the Dark Ages aren't completely dark. There are lots of sources, you know, and we ought to be making the best of them, and they're an interesting period, but sometimes, again, you get this sense of almost people justifying their careers, when Mm -hmm. they really shouldn't need to, but there's that sense of, well, perhaps I've got to explain this. So um, for some people it's still the late Roman Empire, otherwise it's late antiquity. Um, Others will roll it into the early medieval world, particularly people who like the whole idea of sort of transformation of this sort of seamless development into the Middle Ages and isn't that all great? Mm -hmm. Um, And so you'll get some quite odd divisions of period Mm -hmm. and it's now quite possible, whereas a generation or so ago anybody who was a specialist in this period would also have studied the early Roman Empire. it's now quite possible to go through your career and simply study one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I I will freely admit that I'm quite a latecomer to looking at this period. Pretty much everything I did as a student, my um, research as a graduate student, was all on the late Republic, the early Empire, Mm -hmm. the the period I've tended to write about in the past. Um, I hope that's an advantage, that it gives you some perspective when you come in and look at the The literature of the specialists Mm -hmm. um on this period which is is vast and a lot of it is really Mm -hmm. terrific i mean there have been huge advances in the field in the last 20 30 years um and people have used sources a lot more intelligently um but on the other hand some of the answers they've come up with just do not make any sense at all to me as as an outsider and Mm -hmm. at, at the very least if i can Highlight those. I'd quite like somebody to, even if they can prove me wrong, um, just to address some of these issues because they, they simply seem to be ignored.
1: Um, I think that w- one of the, one of the most interesting things about the book is, is that, uh, well, I, I should, the people listening to this show will know, but historians tend to look for the causes of things. Uh, first, they look back a little bit, and then they, uh, in competition with one another, push it back a little further, mm-hmm. and then they push it back a little further, and then it turns mm-hmm. out that. Uh, everything is a result of something that happened in the 3rd century. Um, And and this this tendency to push things farther farther back, I think you also see in your field. And and, and one of the things that that, uh, I I think I uh, read it in the book, or maybe I'm just um, drawing an inference, is that people tend to look at what happened in the 5th century in the light of things that happened in the 3rd century, during the 3rd century crisis. But I think your thesis is that actually, while there was a 3rd century crisis, that the empire was relatively strong in this period. Maybe you could talk a little about that.
0: Yes, I mean, I, I, in many ways it's the, the sort of the new orthodoxy of the specialists in the period is that Rome goes through a slightly wobbly phase in the third century, but mm-hmm. the fourth century empire is this terrific, marvelously efficient thing that in many ways is superior mm-hmm. to the early empire. Now, personally, I don't buy that. Um, it, it doesn't work. As soon as you look closely at how at the Empire actually tried to do anything, it, mm-hmm. it seems far more difficult to achieve quite simple tasks. However, the, the, the key thing to remember, which I, I try to emphasize throughout the book, is the sheer size of the Roman Empire.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it is existing in a world where it does not face a serious competitor. Mm-hmm. And that's even true well into the 4th century and 5th and beyond. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, There is no one out there with whom the Romans are in meaningful contact. I mean, they're they're sort of dimly aware that um, China exists, and the Chinese are dimly aware the Romans exist, and there's some very sort of distant um, luxury trade. But there's no real meaningful contact. They're certainly not competitors. Mm -hmm. They're just too far away. Otherwise, Rome is bigger. Than mm-hmm. everyone else, it's got more people. It's more sophisticated technologically. It's wealthier. Its economy is more sophisticated. Its military, everything, is massively superior. Mm-hmm. There is no one out there who can compete on a an even pitch on a level playing field mm-hmm. to Romans. Mm-hmm. So the sheer size of the, the Roman Empire means that it doesn't have to be efficient, and that mm-hmm. even in the later periods, even in the third century, in the fourth century, it is. Just bigger than everyone else. There is no one capable of pushing it over. There is no one really capable of of destroying it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this this puts the question in a kind of a different light um, than say Gibbon did. I mean, in the sense mm-hmm. that, uh, in the sense that the the Romans seem to have uh, snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory. In other words, they uh, the real question is why, given all their superiority. Um, what, how how was it the case that they fell?
0: Well, that's the um, obviously the the big question of the book, and the the, the main answer that I I think just, just shines out and has been ignored again and again by scholars. I I don't really understand why the period specialists seem to ignore it. Is that the system rots from the inside and it rots from the top?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If you look at the the last few centuries from 217 A.D right through to near the end of the 5th century, when the Western Empire collapses altogether and just becomes a memory, there are only about three decades without a civil war. Mm -hmm. So that's for more than two and a half centuries, the Mm -hmm. Romans are busily fighting themselves. Mm -hmm. And because this doesn't have major cultural implications, you know, nothing much changes other than who's actually in charge when a civil war is fought, when it's decided. The specialists tend to take this as sort of part of the, the scenery. It's just a particularly mm-hmm. robust way of selecting the next emperor. Mm-hmm. But uh, very few emperors get to die a natural death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more Roman soldiers are probably killed fighting other Roman soldiers than they are fighting foreign enemies. Mm-hmm. These wars tend to be fought inevitably inside the empire. So when a city is stormed, when it's sacked, when it's destroyed, when cattle are driven off to feed the troops when areas are plundered, all of that is happening within your own empire, within your own provinces. Mm -hmm. And this goes on and on and it fundamentally affects the mindset of the people in charge the emperors themselves obviously are far more concerned about internal rivals because they're the people who will kill you.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: The king of Persia, some German chieftain, however many battles they win against you, they are very unlikely to catch or to kill you. They're not going to take your job. Mm-hmm. But another Roman has to get rid of you. Mm-hmm. Another challenger, another usurper, he is your very personal enemy. Mm-hmm. And the civil war can only end when one of you is dead.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you have this sense whereby emperors become concerned about survival. But so does everybody else at each level in the bureaucracy mm-hmm. because your opponents, the challenges will come from your generals, from your senior bureaucrats, from your governors. So you can't really trust them. The people you have to use to control the empire because you can't be everywhere, you can't do everything. You cannot trust these people. And they know that the emperor is suspicious of them. And you have a situation where, as far as they're concerned, they have to be nervous about everybody else, both their their equals, their seniors, their subordinates, because one of the best ways to prove your loyalty to the emperor is to rat on somebody else Mm -hmm. and to claim that they're plotting and condemn them. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a situation where you you can't trust anyone and everybody at all levels is far more concerned with personal survival, personal success and enrichment than they are with actually doing the job well. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. because the empire is so big, because its resources are so massive, it will probably win in the end. You know, it, the, Even though the system is appallingly inefficient, it doesn't matter,
2: mm-hmm.
0: or at least it doesn't matter immediately. And what you have is it sort of lurches along, and there will be defeats, but they're not going to be too bad. Most of your enemies, they can raid into the empire, they can invade, but they can't stay there. They can't really conquer until much later. Mm-hmm. In the end, you've got more resources. You can send more soldiers. You can bribe them to go away you can win the conflict, mm-hmm. you, or at least you won't lose too badly. Mm-hmm. So you, you have the luxury, you can keep on fighting civil wars and the empire doesn't collapse, mm-hmm. but it becomes less and less capable of dealing with even quite small-scale problems. Mm-hmm. And then you end up by the late 4th and 5th century where you will have these sudden very dramatic failures where you will have military disasters, you'll lose a war, or you might lose a province. And you've got to the point where the system is creaking so badly that when it does face even quite a small crisis it simply cannot cope Mm -hmm. in a way that was unimaginable centuries earlier Mm -hmm. and yet you've still got all the resources, you are still so big, you are so sophisticated but you can't use them in
1: an effective way Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean to someone who has uh, studied Russian history for Mm. over 20 years, this sounds like the story of the Soviet Union to me, but we can come (laughs) back to that in a second, everything you just said about the Romans could have been said about the Soviet Union I -hmm. I guarantee you, but let me ask uh, this question why why was it that the Romans were smart people Um, why was it the case that they failed to produce a a a stable system of succession to high office that did not involve assassination as one of its primary tools
0: well the thing is they would had it for a while I mean if you look um, it was one of the interesting things coming from doing the biography of Caesar onto this this next project in that Caesar's life was dominated by civil war. You know, there, there's writing in the forum months after he's born, when he's a teenager, the, the first Roman, or well, for the first time Roman army um, is actually led by its commander against the city of Rome and storms Rome, and that will happen time and again. So the first century BC is dominated by civil war, by um, attempted coups, by assassinations, which culminates in Caesar's adopted son, Octavian become the emperor Augustus, mm-hmm. Is the last man left standing, mm-hmm. and he creates the, the imperial system, the principate, as we call it, mm-hmm. because he pretended to be the the princeps, the, the first among equals, the mm-hmm. first citizen, rather mm-hmm. than the military dictator that he, in fact, was. Mm-hmm. But then for more than 200 years... But there are only very, very brief interruptions to the stability. I mean, a few emperors get assassinated, usually because they're mad, um, and, you know, after a while people get fed up even of that. But there are not these repeated civil wars. There is far more stability. So, you know, unless you take the view that that's almost a fluke, mm-hmm. then the system has developed where it actually works quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, it works particularly well in the second century where, almost by chance, you end up with several emperors who don't have sons of their own. Mm -hmm. They adopt somebody as Mm -hmm. their successor, and that means they've got far more choice over who they get and how much Mm -hmm. talent they've got. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also have a a fundamental shift that happens after Marcus Aurelius, who does have a son, and he's succeeded by his son Commodus, who proves to be one of the the certainly bad and possibly mad emperors, but who, you know, last 12 years before he's finally strangled in his bath. Mm-hmm. Um, that succession then leads to war. Well, his death leads to a civil war because there's no... And the, after that, you have, you're have you getting very quickly into this cycle that will not really end till the empire goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, and,
1: and, and why at that moment, why, why do you think the system sort of slipped uh, over an edge or reached a kind of tipping point where you had this cycle of civil wars, particularly then?
0: Part of the problem is that when... Commodus is initially succeeded by a chap called Pertinax, who gets murdered after three months, mm-hmm. but then you have a, a four-year civil war when three commanders of the biggest armies in the empire fight it out, mm-hmm. and they do deals with each other for a while to sort of, you know, let's share things, then they basically kill each other off. Mm-hmm. That the dynasty that succeeds to that starts to make some fairly fundamental changes to the system, which will continue throughout the third century. Up until then, Anyone who could possibly be considered an emperor had to be not just a senator, but one of a very small number of important leading senators, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a dozen or so men in the entire empire mm-hmm. who could be considered potential emperors. Mm-hmm. That does make it a lot easier for the emperor to keep an eye on these, you know, these people. He, he knows who the challenges are likely to be. Mm-hmm. And even a bad emperor can keep an eye on them, but a good emperor will placate these people, give them enough honors, or also you know, watch them and, and if necessary, execute them. Then it changes. The emperors who succeed, the ones who win through civil war, are obviously nervous of their position. Mm-hmm. And they have a tendency to marginalize the Senate. And mm-hmm. this happens over about a generation where instead of being the men through whom the emperor ruled the empire. Mm-hmm. You know, they provide all your most important governors, all your army commanders, all your advisors, and any emperor who moves beyond this group for his advisors is hated pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and most simply don't do this. Instead, you start choosing advisors from the next social class down, which is a far bigger group, the mm-hmm. equestrian the order, that numbers in probably tens of thousands instead mm-hmm. of a few hundred. And. As you make these people your army commanders, as you make them your advisors, they get power. Mm-hmm. You end up with a situation where in 27, sorry, yes, 217, when um, the Emperor Caracalla is murdered, the commander of his bodyguard, who isn't a senator, who has had no political career whatsoever, but because he controls the troops on the spot, declares himself emperor. Mm-hmm. And from then on it becomes much rarer for a senator to be an emperor, and the senators stop having a military role, they stop being the governors, you end up dividing power. Emperors try to make themselves safe by relying on people of a lower social status to be their most important um, agents, their commanders, their, their governors. But that doesn't work, because then these people become emperor, and there are a lot more of them, and it's much, much harder to watch thousands of potential rivals than it is a dozen or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. The emperor can be made in Spain, he can be made in Britain or Syria. Anywhere where you can get enough troops to proclaim you emperor, then you have a a, a reasonable chance, you can be a challenger. You might not last very long, but you could succeed. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But the whole thing becomes less stable and it is a key mistake. The emperors think they're making themselves safer, but in fact, they make their position far more precarious. It's the same later on at the end of the third century when ritual develops at court to a far more extreme degree. You know, Augustus pretended to be the first among equals. He would walk through the streets of Rome. He would rise to greet senators when they came into his house, and he would shake hands with them. By the end of the third century, you have emperors like Diocletian who are wearing jeweled robes who insist that people must prostrate themselves on the ground when they come into the imperial presence you know the favored ones might get to kiss the hem of your robe you're surrounding yourself with ritual you make it much harder for people to get to you In theory, because this should make the emperor more majestic, it should make him um, less vulnerable to assassination, to um, attacks like that, but in reality, it isolates him, Mm -hmm. and it also means that again, once you become emperor, all of these things are now, you know, you're treated that way, that's how people behave to you. So again, it doesn't really matter who you are, all you need is just enough backing. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I see. That's. I find that. Uh, you know. I find the explanation quite compelling. Again, because it g- jives with everything that I know about Soviet history. So I've, <laughs> I've seen this before. <laughs> um, well, in, in the end, a military
0: dictatorship is probably going to go the same way. No, otherwise. No.
1: Right. So let me uh, let, let me just present mm-hmm. a couple of other things that have been major explanations that have been proffered for the decline of the empire. You've dealt with one of them, but I might like you talking mm-hmm. about them a little bit more. And that is the the um, The the Germanic invasions and the the Persians, um, uh, how did they contribute to the decline of the empire and its fall?
0: Well, the the sort of the orthodox view is that the Persians are this new superpower that suddenly springs to life in the early third century. And because it's such a threat, then Rome has to militarize, Rome has to become far more of a, a blatant dictatorship and it has to reform and the emperor has to be much more ruthless about the way he uses and controls power. Um, I don't think, again, that works because the Persians, they are aggressive at the start, but that's because the Persian king has made himself king through his own civil war, through rebelling against the Parthians, and he needs to be aggressive, but... Persian aggression tends to come in the aftermath of a Roman civil war. Mm -hmm. When the Romans are busy stripping their garrisons away from the frontiers and going and clobbering living daylights out of each other, (laughs) they're vulnerable. And the Persians, you know, they're a new regime, they need glory, they need money. The big bad Romans are your neighbors, everybody hates them, so it's a very good glorious thing to go and raid the Roman provinces, Mm -hmm. bring back a lot of slaves, bring back a lot of, of plunder. So. Persian attacks tend to occur and be far more successful whenever the Romans make themselves weak. Mm -hmm. I find it actually difficult to believe that they are much stronger or more threatening than the Parthians. They are still a big civilization. They're organized. They have an organized army, but they're a lot smaller than Rome. Mm -hmm. They don't have the population. They don't have the money. Um, You know, there was never going to be a case of a Persian army arriving on the River Tiber and Mm -hmm. sacking Rome itself. Mm -hmm. And yet the Romans pushed down the Euphrates and Tigris valleys time after time and burned down the Persian capitals.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: it's a different – they are powerful. They're the biggest state out there, but they are still dwarfed by Roman power mm-hmm. until the empire divides. And by the time you get to about the 6th century, then maybe there's equality. But it's, it's taken Rome to decline a, big, a, a, a huge degree before that, that's possible. Mm-hmm. The Germans, the tribes, the barbarians are a slightly different problem in that, again, there's the old view that these unite, you know, that whereas you had, say, in Julius Caesar's day, lots of small independent tribes, that they coalesce into these great confederations like the Franks and the Alemanni and the Goths and, you know, groups that will carve out kingdoms for themselves in, as the Roman Empire collapses. Again, there's a problem in that is when you actually look at how these tribes behave, militarily and politically. There seems no difference at all between the first century B.C. and the fourth century A.D. But, you know, they act in exactly the same way. They don't seem to have bigger armies. They don't seem to have huge numbers of people. If anything, the armies are probably smaller. And once again, just like the Persians, German successes, barbarian raids occur most often at a time when the Romans are busy fighting each other. Mm -hmm. And in the aftermath of successive civil wars where the Roman army has simply worn itself out, it isn't there, it isn't in place, even if soldiers exist, they're not well-trained, they're not well-supported, they're not well-controlled, they're not that confident. So it's one of those things where the Germans get more and more successful because Rome is weak. And by the time they are creating kingdoms, by the time the Visigoths can overrun Spain, the Vandals can take Africa, the Goths later on Italy. There are not very many of them in these armies. Mm -hmm. It's just that there is virtually no one who can organize a big enough force to to oppose them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another interesting side, which which again, we tend to think very much of these sort of raveling hordes of barbarians streaming across the frozen river Rhine and all this sort of thing. But much of the contact between the the empire and the barbarians is is peaceful and it's to do with trade. Mm -hmm. And again, it's something where Rome's own problems cause the the tribes outside, who've always been aggressive but haven't been that organized, but mm-hmm. they tend to make them more aggressive because the people you really trade with are the communities based around the Roman army along the frontiers. Mm-hmm. Now, when those march away to fight a civil war and often don't come back, the market for the German farmers has gone.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the livelihood these people have relied on has suddenly vanished, which means that to feed your family, to feed yourself, probably the best thing to do is to go and raid the Roman province because, (laughs) hey, the soldiers have gone, so the opportunity is there. The other thing is is that when a civil war occurs, for a Roman leader, he knows he's going to be fighting another Roman army. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have a technological or tactical advantage over the enemy, which means that in the end, it's numbers that will probably count. And you can't raise lots of disciplined Roman soldiers quickly and form them into an army. But what you can do is go and hire a load of barbarians, pay them to come and fight on your side, mm-hmm. which is good. But given that somebody is bound to lose the civil war, that means all the mercenaries they've hired are then stuck in the middle of the empire somewhere, probably not too welcomed by the opponent mm-hmm. who isn't likely to want to pay them. So you end up with some of the raids starting from German nurseries who've got to get their way, find their way home. Mm -hmm. But also, you create lots of German war leaders because Mm -hmm. you keep paying them subsidies. Mm -hmm. And when these people don't have a Roman to hire them, they've got to feed their warriors. They've got to pay and reward them. So again, the best alternative is to go and raid the Roman provinces, get glory that way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it, again, this, this Roman instability feeds outwards. And it encourages and makes more aggressive the the peoples outside. At the same time, as you're making yourself very very vulnerable to attack.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, no, I can. Yeah, I can. I can absolutely understand that dependence. And then once uh, uh, the, the Romans withdraw, then there's a, a certain amount of hard feeling about that. Uh, mm. So the the let's uh, turn then to. Um, uh, an unavoidable name here in the discussion of uh, Roman affairs that is Gibbon. Gibbon's uh, favorite explanations, as I recall them, from about 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and that would be, one would be the decline of uh, morals or civic virtue. Uh, what do you is there, is there anything to this? there's an
0: element. It's certainly the Romans, as indeed the Greeks, tended to explain any big problem, essentially, in moral terms. So uh, we're not as good men as our our fathers were, our grandfathers were, and therefore we don't fight as well. We bicker with each other. Ambition, greed, all these things take over. They were saying exactly the same things in the first century B.C. when they're having the civil wars there, as they do in the fourth, fifth, and uh, and later. Mm -hmm. Um, There's certainly – it's one of the things that – Um, Again, some of the scholars working on the period will dispute this, but the archaeology is difficult to argue with. Roman cities tend to be bigger, more prosperous in the second and early third century, Mm -hmm. and they shrink in size. You don't get the big monuments built that you had after that. Um, There is also something of a withdrawal from public life, but it is limited. The biggest group you lose are the senators Mm -hmm. because the emperor doesn't trust them, so they can't have their political careers. Now, in some ways, you think, well, that just cuts off the sort of top 600 or so people who then basically will concentrate on literary pursuits and on honor and prestige at court, but not really having major responsibility and on doing favors for each other and and this sort of thing. But the local aristocracies, the people who were the big men in a city in Spain, say, or North Africa, the people who do well locally earlier on aspired to make their children equestrians and then perhaps their grandchildren senators. You know, by the second century AD, you've got men like Trajan and Hadrian whose families were from Spain. You'll have Septimius Severus from Africa. You're having emperors, not just senators, but emperors who have really had a long family history in one of the provinces, mm-hmm. and and yet they are Roman. They aspire to going to the centre.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That weakens. As cities become less important, as the central government takes more and more power into its own hands, and instead of letting the cities and the provinces govern themselves as much as possible on the day-to-day basis, then central government wants to control it. Mm-hmm. But it isn't really big enough, and it isn't really capable enough of doing this terribly well. But it means that being an imperial civil servant has far more advantages than Getting involved in your local politics mm-hmm. to the extent where you're actually having to force people to take on obligations mm-hmm. because people in local government spent a lot of their own money in building projects in the cities. You know they didn't get much of a salary. If they wanted to be famous, which was the you know the great urge to to excel to um, exalt your family name, you had to spend. You had to commit a lot. That man no, no, is no longer important. You get a job in the imperial civil service, you get status, you get honors, you get legal protection, and you get exemptions from doing anything from your home community. Mm-hmm. There is definitely a rotting of the system. Again, I suspect it has far more to do with this, the, the immediate political problems that you have at the very center of the empire, and it gradually filters down. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. So another uh, and related uh, factor that Gibbon talks about famously is Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. is, there, is there anything to that? To
0: some extent, I mean, people do tend to exaggerate um, uh, the extent to which Gibbon argues that this was a, a major factor in decline. He certainly is extremely scathing and often, you know, this is sometimes where his wit is most frequently mm-hmm. and well expressed, is having a go at some of the, the leaders of the early church and some of the bishops who were busy organizing schisms and... Um, But you have to remember as well, you know, he's an an 18th century Englishman who's writing in the Enlightenment and who is not terribly keen on the Catholic Church and the Pope in Rome, Mm -hmm. particularly as, you know, almost an act of student rebellion, given himself, had briefly converted to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So there's there's an element of personal history as well. And, you know, you've only got to go back when he was a a small child. You've got the last Jacobite rising in Scotland with, you know, a Catholic king. um, So it's very much a live issue, and there's this suspicion of, particularly an organized Catholic church. It's obviously one of the great stories of the period of how Christianity goes from being this persecuted sect in the first and second centuries to becoming the religion of empire under Constantine and afterwards. And, you know, really by the end of the period, there is very little trace left of, of paganism, mm-hmm. um, certainly in the uh, in higher levels of society.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So it's a, it's a huge story, but... When you look closely, there's actually very little difference in behavior between the Christian empire and the pagan empire. The ideology of power, the ideology of empire doesn't really change at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Constantine converts largely because he becomes convinced that the Christian God will give him victory. Mm-hmm. So it's the power of, of God rather than a deep emotional thing or um, conviction that perhaps comes later. Um, but previous emperors had claimed to be particularly favoured by certain divinities, especially the sun god in the third century, mm-hmm. and had tried to promote this. There was a sort of move towards aspects that were similar, so that it makes a difference but I mean Gibbon obviously has a go at the um, the rise of monasticism and how many influential people and important people stepped out of public life and went off and became hermits or nuns or whatever you can easily exaggerate that. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember what we said at the beginning that our sources are limited and an awful lot of what survives tends to be stuff that this church considered important. So. We get lots of lives of aesthetics, of hermits, of, you know, stylites, these chaps who, who sat on top of poles contemplating. Um, they weren't normal, you know, even at the time. That's why people wrote about them. And I, I don't mean that in a sort of, you know, critical sense. But in terms of, you know, this was not what everybody was doing. Um, you tell these stories in the same way, you know, we do a horror movie or something like that, because it's exceptional, because it's exciting. That's what people want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's what they might admire, but it isn't, you know, this isn't everyday life mm-hmm. um, for the, the overwhelming majority. So it's it's a lot more limited. And again, it's something really that follows on later rather than causes the problems of the empire. People withdraw from politics because politics has just got so dangerous and public mm-hmm. life has got yeah. so dangerous that it can simply be safer um, to go into the church. I and mean. yeah. It's quite interesting that mm. in some of the later civil wars, when you, you beat somebody who really, you know, the emperor decides he just isn't worth killings, he isn't that much of a threat, you often make that defeated rival a bishop. Mm-hmm. Sort of send him off somewhere yeah. to go and, um, yeah. you know, just keep, you know, you, you, I don't need to kill you, but uh, just, just busy yourself that way and don't worry about politics mm-hmm. anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see. No, I'm reminded of something that uh, some very wise person said to me, and that is that if all that you had was a dictionary of national biographies surviving from some era, you would come to the conclusion that everyone was famous. <laughs> so so yeah you do have to you, people don't write about everything the only write no, it's interesting sorry. to them so let, let me ask you a a, a a kind of controversial question i'm very interested mm-hmm. in this myself we've we've skirted it a little bit here and that is you you close the book uh with some discussion of attempts to compare the um I'm not going to call it the modern American empire because mm-hmm. I don't think it's an empire. A mm-hmm. modern, uh, the modern United States with um, the late Roman Empire. Maybe you could talk. You're not a big fan of this, I think, and maybe you could talk a little bit about why not.
0: There are quite a few reasons, um, and I think on the whole, you know, we all ought to be very glad that the modern America isn't like ancient <laughs> Rome because you really wouldn't, I mean, much to <laughs> admire and like yeah. studying, you really wouldn't want the Romans around in the world. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but it's, it is something that you just find again and again if this, this parallel is brought up. From the beginning, I wanted to write the book as a historian looking at the period. I think if you go, if you start with an assumption and you want to prove a case for uh, similarity with the modern world, you will find it. Mm-hmm. You will have whatever prejudices, whatever beliefs you have, you will see them in the evidence because you'll want to see them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And really, you need to look at the evidence and see what pattern emerges on its own mm-hmm. and try and understand the fall of Rome simply within the context of the times, mm-hmm. um, you know, as far as possible. We try to make ourselves detached. I know it, it's it's you, you cannot completely remove all biases, all assumptions. But as a historian, you know, you try to understand the past on its own terms. And I mm-hmm. think if ever you stray away from that consciously, then, you you know, you're going to go down the wrong path. Mm-hmm. And you, will, you know, it will weaken everything you say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the Romans, of course, it, it, it in some ways, that the, there are things that are used to, you know, for the Romans, their word imperium means power. Mm-hmm. So, from their point of view, you could see the United States as a, an empire because it is a power but it you know it isn't the same um with obviously the the exception of the the physical occupation of of the west and the American continent you know it, it has never been the sort of power that has sought major overseas provinces and possessions, which is the one thing that the Romans did on a very big scale mm-hmm. um There are a lot of basic differences in just the world has changed so much in terms of the sheer size of the population, the speed of communications the the pace of everything um, and um, a lot of assumptions of international law, ideas of this sort, which, okay, may be to some extent ephemeral, but um, the Romans didn't really recognize the the right of anybody else to exist. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they never dealt with people as an equal. Mm-hmm. They simply thought in terms of their own advantage. They, they thought it quite natural that other people would fight for their freedom, but they also had no compunction at all about taking it away from them mm-hmm. and turning them into Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you try and look at specifics, if you try and force the modern world into the mold of ancient Rome, then in the end, you're not really going to learn very much and you're not going to understand the modern world properly. Mm -hmm. I think the value of history is that it tells us about how people act and how they think and how they work. And whilst yes, a society will affect an awful lot of things of how we behave, how we act, in the end, personally, I believe that people are fundamentally the same Mm -hmm. as they always have been and that the way they interact, the way the societies work, will always tend to um, fit into similar patterns. Mm -hmm. So there are general lessons I think we can learn Mm -hmm. about how a political system can fail, can collapse, can decline. There are also sheer warnings in that, again, going back to an earlier point, the basic truth of the Roman Empire was that it was so huge, it was so wealthy, it was so sophisticated, far more so than any rival, that it didn't face serious competition. And it meant that it could survive for a very long time without being efficient. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that is a warning to all of us, and that's a warning to to businesses as much to countries, to any institution, in that it's easy to take for granted that because you you keep on being successful, you must deserve it. Mm -hmm. And Perhaps it's a particular warning we ought to think about in modern Western democracies: is that it's easy for us to take all these things for granted, and they're pretty rare. Mm-hmm. You know, there haven't been too many societies like uh, like those in, in history, mm-hmm. um, and these things can be fragile. These systems can collapse, as the Roman Republic collapsed. The women, you know even when you are powerful, even when you dominate the world, that mm-hmm. doesn 't mean that you always will if you mm-hmm. stop working for it mm-hmm. and if you stop in the end, realizing what you 're there for mm-hmm. and remembering that, and mm-hmm. you know um, whether it 's a, a business competing and effectively marketing, effectively producing, doing all these things, if it doesn 't face serious competition, its weaknesses, its flaws will not become obvious mm-hmm. until suddenly the situation changes, the circumstances become less favorable, or a competitor arrives, mm-hmm. and then you tend to get hit very strongly mm-hmm. and you collapse quickly. Um, with countries, the same thing can happen. Um, you know, it's obviously recently everybody's been, everyone in their dog seems to be talking about the Great Depression and assuming that, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're going to be one, all this sort of thing. In the same way that um, you had a lot of talk in the, the run-up to um, the Iraq War about the 30s and the appeasement of Hitler mm-hmm. and how. Neither of which situation, I mean, I'm not arguing at all either way about about any of those things, are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the threat of international terrorism, which is a serious and a dreadful thing, is not the same as the the threat of Nazi Germany Mm -hmm. or Imperial Japan, Mm -hmm. because those were organized, industrial, powerful states that do things differently Mm -hmm. and have the capacity to inflict far more damage. Um, So sometimes I think we end up, you know, we like to in the same way that the modern crisis could become another great depression well it's difficult to see as yet and I hope we won't see it the the soup kitchens the the levels of poverty mm-hmm. that you had in the 30s mm-hmm. being repeated because we've got a lot further to fall
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know we are a far more prosperous society to start off with mm-hmm. um so Sometimes, you know, history gets used very casually. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, everything, every immediate disaster, every short-term disaster can be the collapse of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the Romans were talking about their empire collapsing for centuries before it actually (laughs) did. And yet, even at the very end, no one could quite imagine it happening. You know, you talked about it, but it was one of those things, you take it for granted. So I think there's. Uh, Yeah, there are, there are sort of lessons in there, and I think there are things we can learn, but they're more very general things about human behaviour. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, that's just
1: that's just a terrific statement, general statement of, of of how you should and should not use historical analogies, and I, and I agree with absolutely everything in it. I. I I, I think i'm going to get a t-shirt that uh, says um hi- i think i think your expression was Hist- history gets used very casually and I'm going to <laughs> that right Because that is exactly right i mean people just mm. glom onto these things and they sort of mold them around contemporary events as if they were identical when in fact they're mm. they're really very 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 different and uh and you know it's, it's a it's, it's a it's a curious thing and it's something that professional historians and popular historians have to fight against you know all the time because these mm. things um you know, they get repeated and they, they kind of get into the cultural stream and they're very difficult mm. to, to remove, especially, you know, I was just talking to students about appeasement. Appeasement is something mm. we don't seem to be able to do away with. And really mm. it's it's achieved a kind of life of its own. The idea itself has an autonomy that isn't rooted in what happened in um, the, the late 1930s. Uh, it's, mm. it's, it's now a, an entity that exists and has to be fought on its own. So it's very, very peculiar. So anyway, let me... Um, let me say that we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really, really appreciate it. Let me ask you our uh, traditional final question here on New Books in History, and that is what are you working on now? What's your next project?
0: I'm going back to really the sort of logical uh, follow-up to Caesar mm. in that I'm sticking with Shakespeare as regards titles, and I'm doing a paired biography of Antony and Cleopatra. Oh, really? Um, so it's a slightly different thing, It's, it's um, but it's – It's an interesting story because uh, Cleopatra in particular, I think people always get wrong. And the more I look at it, the more I think the image of Mark Antony, which really developed quite soon, almost some of it in his own lifetime, and some of it his. Deliberate presentation himself as this sort of bluff military man. Mm -hmm. When you look closely, isn't borne out by the facts. That wasn't what he was. He was far more of a politician. He actually spent next to no time fighting anybody or with the Roman army. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the other thing is the uncomfortable truth is that we like an Egyptian Cleopatra. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But um, she was actually born and lived closer in time to us than she did to the builders
1: of the Great Pyramid. Yeah, no, that's right. That is absolutely right. Actually, um, uh, my... my, uh I'm forgetting exactly who it was, but I did interview somebody who wrote a biography of Cleopatra, on this show In fact all right. I'm going to take Just a second To look it up Even Because I, I feel embarrassed That I cannot remember Her name um, I will say it in the, yeah, Darn it I cannot remember Well I encourage anybody Who uh, has access To new books in history To go look But she wrote a terrific book About mm. Cleopatra And she points just this out um, The mm. other thing is that Yeah the Egyptian Cleopatra it's, it's very interesting About Cleopatra Because she really lived In the Hellenistic world She wasn't, mm. she wasn't very Egyptian At all um, And uh, one question I actually asked her Darn if I can remember her name uh what was uh what language um uh the two of them mark anthony and uh uh, cleopatra spoke to each other in i guess it must have been greek right i Oh, yes, yeah. yeah as far to as we have know, been I didn't speak yeah, about, yeah. Yeah, I'm um, Greek, right? So I thought that was an interesting point. But anyway, we look very much forward to seeing that book. Good luck delivering it. You told me to deliver it by Christmas. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that sounds like a lot of um, work. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure TV you'll do it. Yeah, I'm sure that you'll bring it off wonderfully. Uh, so we've been interviewing, um, we've been talking to uh, Adrian Goldsworthy today about his terrific new book, uh, How Rome Fell, The Death of a Superpower. I've enjoyed the interview very much. Um, and I'd like to say thank you, Adrian, for being on the show.
0: Thanks, Marshall. It's been great to have uh, okay. to be here. Okay,
1: take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Adrian Goldsworthy about his new book, How Rome Fell, Death of a Superpower. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.